Hello and welcome to episode 81 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host Matthew Neugebauer coming to you on this Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. It's the Tuesday after the first Sunday after Trinity, or the second Sunday after Pentecost, or Corpus Christi, or whatever it is uh, you're counting. Uh, this is kind of the time of the year where the numbering gets a little off in the church calendar. I'm going to go by Sundays after Trinity because that's the world I inhabit currently. Uh, previous years, I was in places where they count Sundays after Pentecost. Anyway, that's a whole academic debate. <laughs> we don't need to worry about too much. Uh, it, it's June. You've uh, We've made it this far. I have my Celebration Hotel. I'm looking forward to it in less than a year's time. It's going to be a fun, wonderful uh, convention coming together of Star Wars fandom. Let's hope. Um the, today we're going to talk about uh, the first arc in Kevin Scott's comic series uh, for the High Republic. Uh, there is no fear. The, the comic run, written by Kevin Scott with art by Ario and Indito, and uh, definitely brilliant art, brilliant colors, um, all surrounding a heartfelt story. And if you go back last week and listen to um, listen to my, my podcast last week. Well, Keeve Trennis is definitely attracting my attention and my interest as a character, seeing where she's going to end up. We know where she sort of ends up. We don't know why this is laying the foundation for that while also exploring uh, this aspect of, especially about fear in the High Republic. And I'll get into that in a bit. So for the pull list, because I'm talking about a comic book, I'm going to talk about Solo 2. No, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about War of the Bounty Hunters, um, which no, the uh, so the every Marvel crossover it brings in all the different series that are going on, or a lot of the different series going on. This is a Star Wars crossover, so there's definitely going to be more interconnection. War of the Bounty Hunters number one is part of the uh, War of the Bounty Hunters comic run proper. You, they usually have a short run series called whatever the, the crossover is. So that's what this is. And it's going to be written by, Char it is written by Charles Sewell. And I got to weigh in. I mean, it's a, it's definitely an intriguing, was an intriguing story. I had to, I have to weigh in on the, the Kira uh, reveal. If you, you know, spoilers, if you've gotten this far without uh, encountering that, then congratulations. But, you know, spoilers anyway. Yeah. Kira, um, I, I, I noticed that I, I could tell this was coming the moment we saw Crimson Dawn. I mean, we see a female figure with the hood, but it's nice that it gets confirmed uh, sort of on the last page there. Um, this is, she was one of my, she was my favorite character in Solo, her and Emphis Nest, who we'll probably see in the Andor series, hopefully, uh, are my favorite characters in Solo, the most compelling parts of it, frankly, for me, more than Han or Lando. So I'm glad to see them pick up uh, where, not, not so much where they left off, because this is about, what, 13, 14 years later. But uh, to, to see her look back and, and grapple with who she was in between that time and the time gap in Solo and how she's come to where she is now and what Han means to her growing as her, her childhood sweetheart. And now she's the powerful leader of a crime syndicate. Now that Maul is, is gone and done. Um, 
I'm really intrigued. I mean, this was a, a stroke of genius uh, by Charles Sewell. He says in, in his email newsletter, he always wanted to tell this story. I should say uh, the uh, it's been a few days since I read it. Normally, I read my comics on Mondays, but this one I knew I wasn't going to be avo- able to avoid the spoiler. So I, I walked down to the comic book store on Wednesday, bought the book and my, my other polls and came home and read it <laughs> and then... Okay, here we go. We're we're in business with Kira, and it's a little surprising because it gives, uh, in terms of the the wider Lucasfilm storytelling, it, it gives a clear answer about what, or or suggests a clear clearer answer about what they're thinking about Solo Two, and uh, that pocket of storytelling is they're not likely to revisit it, revisit it and revisit Kira anytime soon because Lucasfilm tends to hold on to characters very tightly that uh, they want to use in live action or animation. And so they're not almost, they're almost never willing to say, okay, you want to use, use this character in in a book or a novel book or a, a comic book or some other medium and, uh, you know, so takes away the mystery of whether or not she lives or dies or where she is and where she's at or where she's headed. Oh. It, it, it's so it, it was a little surprising, but look, I mean, the way I, I read comics and my, my experience of comics, and this has come up a few times, you know, it's clear whatever you want to think about canon and kind of continuity and all that my experience of reading comics is and novels is on par with the films and animation and i know not everybody is like that is in that space but that's part of what i bring to the canon discussion is just an experience of this is one coherent story so i'm excited by it i i gather some a lot of people are also excited by it what i see on twitter in other places, I think some people are going to be disappointed and say, uh, oh, I was really hoping for a Kira show or a Kira, Kira film or Solo 2 or who knows what. And I, I can see people being yeah let down that this if this is what this means. And, you know, this is, I don't usually go into news like this, but I think I think it's, it's relevant, and especially in terms of these canon conversations. Again, I mean, given the way Lucasfilm storytelling is going, I could be wrong entirely, both in terms of do they want, is this sort of a a setup in uh, reverse for introducing her into, uh, probably not Cassian, that, the Andor show, that doesn't make sense. But in, in Book of Boba Fett, which is set, uh, set later, I don't know. Um, or, or just, yeah, what happens after the events of Solo. I mean, we all want to hear that and see that. And that probably does deserve to be shown on uh, on a screen of some sort and not in a comic book because it was set up on the big screen in that those final moments of Solo where Maul tells her to come to Dathomir. But uh, whatever they do, I mean, to me, Charles Sewell, I tweeted this out after I read the book. He's second to Dave Filoni in my books right now in terms of 
Star Wars storytelling. In terms of the comics, I mean, Claude Gray is definitely up there as well. As we'll see, Kevin Scott is, is up there too. But in terms of the Midas touch, you know, yeah, maybe there's, for me, there is this triumvirate right now of Dave Filoni, Claude Gray, and Charles Sewell. And I know the, the never the twain shall meet with, in terms of Filoni and, and Sewell and Gray, and that uh, in terms of Filoni on one hand and, and Sewell and Gray on the other, um, that's unfortunate. I think get the three of them in a room and they'll write an amazing story about uh, Obi-Wan and Duchess Satine. <laughs> that's my, my my dream that I want to see. I could also see Southern Ontario's E.K. Johnson writing that. That's a whole digression. But yeah, I, you know, it was an exciting first issue. I don't think anything too eventful happened other than this Kira reveal. But that's, I mean, that's the thing we remember about this. So uh, looking forward to where he goes next. Again, it's Charles Sewell. I, I, he, he has a way of plotting out story and thinking about story and about what audience expectations are, how to, the, the, the exact right amount of following them and, and carrying us along and then the exact amount of switching them up and subverting them. And so, I mean, his, his 2017 Vader run is my favorite comic book of all time and it probably will continue to be. I know that's a bit of a recentist thing, but I mean, I've only started reading comics for since 2014 like this. So, um, <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts, but he's the right guy for War of the Bounty Hunters and the reveal choosing to have Kira in there. Uh, the buzz around this, from, just even from a business perspective, but also from the storytelling perspective. He's the right guy to head this up, and um, I'm glad he's in on this and in on that other uh, multimedia project that is going to tell a coherent story that we can trust will tell a coherent story among across various media, namely the high Republic. So let's talk about there is no fear and continuing along with this, uh, this focus on the high Republic, because ultimately that is where this podcast is going and what this is primarily about, especially when, um, New media comes out, new media comes to a close, and a new story comes to a close. And this first arc, at least, of the story comes to a close. I should add, uh, we're 21 days until Kevin Scott's novel, The Rising Storm, comes out. and definitely looking forward to that. I haven't read any of his novels. I've read uh, Tales from Vader's Castle and Return to Vader. I believe I read Return to Vader's Castle. And those were, of course, great. Oh, yes, of course, Dooku Jedi Lost. <laughs> can't forget that although that's a different medium entirely as well right anyway i want to start with the title i'm going to dive in start with the title of of this arc there is no fear and a bit like uh like i was talking about last week with the the whole name high republic i think a little bit it's meant to be ironic clearly it's untrue and at the very beginning, Skier, uh, Skier is telling then Padawan, Keeve Trennis, his Padawan, uh, don't quote maxims at me. <laughs> you know, these, these 
those aren't relevant. You have to actually act. And when you act, then you do encounter fear because people and circumstances are going to oppose your action. And, uh, and, and that's what we see throughout this whole series. This whole arc is, uh, Keeve encountering these different circumstances that, which she has to really confront her fears and acknowledge them. And I want it, it's a wonderful use of, of the inner monologue with or those, those, I think are going to be these iconic green boxes. If Keeve herself becomes the iconic character that I think she's going to become um, iconic in the same way that Dooku, for example, is iconic in a similar way, at least the way that Qui-Gon is iconic. There is no fear. It is uh, an interesting title because it's untrue an untrue maxim because it, we find it in the story written by the same author as Tales from Vader's Castle, which is a Halloween advent, you know, Star Wars adventures, you know, kids, young, young readers story um, going into the spooky and the mysterious of a dark Lord of the Sith and his castle, right? Um, intentionally bringing up uh, circumstances of fear kind of for the, that's for the fun little goofy thing that Halloween is. Well, the, it, and the, there, it is an interesting story in itself. I'll, I'll maybe revisit it come October. Kind of a tradition there. It's all, we also, again, there is no fear. We get it from the author who first posited this whole underlying question about what the High Republic is, um, is what do the Jedi fear the most? And so, uh, for him to introduce this, call it this title, and say, uh, you know, Keeve is just, as a Padawan, just reciting this thing by rote. Um, I mean, I think from the, the Jedi Code. And, uh, you know, I mean, what the High Republic is then, in a way, is the Jedi at a crossroads. And that's the most exciting thing about it for me is this Jedi at the crossroads between are they going to, well, when they're faced with these great threats of the great disaster, the hyperspace disaster, and more importantly, the Nile, and I think even more, most importantly, the Drengir, are they going to, are the Jedi going to live in denial about their own vulnerability? Are they going to live in denial about uh, the possibility that they can't be the guardians of peace and justice, can't effectively win out and save the day? Or are they going to embrace that vulnerability and find in it the strength to actually be the guardians of peace and justice? And that's, I mean, they're ultimately their failure is, you know, they, they entrench. I mean, we see going, looking ahead the next 200 years, the fact that they entrench in their denial as part of the Republic, as an instrument of the Republic. Uh, yeah, it's the thing that Darth Sidious picks up and says, okay, and here's an army, here's a clone army. Just as an aside, um, I want to give a shout out 
again, I give, I give shout outs to these guys a lot, but, um, Dominic, Ben, and, and he was joined by Din, um, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago. They're, uh, uh, they're with the Star Wars Underworld, but they, they also release a uh, commentary show on the Bad Batch. Their show from a few weeks ago on, uh, uh, Rampage, or the one with the, uh, the Rancor. That really went into this and it was an excellent discussion on that. So I just want to shout out to that. Um, go give that a listen to. That brings up these issues of, especially about why the Jedi so quickly latched onto the clone army. And I do hope Bad Batch explores that more. So that's my thoughts on the title of uh, this arc. And as I said before, it's... Uh, it's an interesting way. The storytelling is, it has an interesting way of making it very concrete in the life of this character, Keith Trennis and every issue she has to face it herself as almost a journey of the Jedi in miniature in some ways. Although again, given that we know where she ends up, it's in a different place than the rest of the Jedi Order because she ends up leaving the Jedi Order. <laughs> um, you know, the, the first first thing as a Padawan, we see her facing, uh, I mean, she's supposed to go and do her trial. And then that gets interrupted by this great horde of, we don't know what kind of creatures these are. And, you know, the inst- her instinct, and she's trying to climb these pillars because skier put this metal up and the medallion up and that's supposed to be the test and the force has other plans and <laughs> interrupt and that gets interrupted by this horde and she's being distracted by this local creature who's very the small bug-like creature who is annoying and may seem insignificant and she could give into fear that leads to anger that leads to hate right? She could say, okay, I've got to take care of this horde that's flying in by igniting the green <laughs> and kicking tar and, and taking them out. And, uh, you know, clearly she's afraid and, and panicking and anxious because it's a very panicky, <laughs> uh, fear inducing circumstance. First of all, she calms herself and centers herself and is able to not get annoyed by Canry uh, is is the her friend that comes along the first of many, first of a few at least, and is then able to uh, see the situation more clearly. That uh, she recognizes that these creatures, well, I mean, they are destroying the the city of of the this little kind of rock city that these local creatures have built. And they're sentient creatures, which is important to note there too. Um, you know, she recognizes though that uh, it's it's really Starlight Beacon that's put these creatures off course because they are, by instinct, naturally I mean naturally afraid to enter an habitable planet, but because there's something else bigger that's making them afraid in their animal instinct. And these are non-sentient creatures, I don't think. Um, that's pushing them to fly through. So instead of kicking tar and igniting her green, she again calmly centers herself and says, 
what do these creatures actually need? She changes the, the or ignite, has a signal on on her her flyer and takes it up into the into space and tells Starlight to change, or has Starlight change their signal too, and it's a peaceable solution because she instead of giving into fear, she gave into compassion, gave into compassion, submitted to compassion, to the light. Um, the next episode, the next few issues, they you know, they go into uh, this hut ship that is being attacked by, or I don't know if it's a hut ship. Yeah, it's being attacked by the Nihil, and uh, there's gaseous circumstances, whatnot. So she's, yeah. So here's the the fear she faces in this one. So she is knighted at the end of this first issue. Keith Trennis is now a Jedi Knight. She goes, Skier no longer calls her Padawan. He calls her Jedi Trennis, as in sort of an equal. The very beginning there, uh, says she expects, or everyone expects more from her and much from her. And so it's interesting that the, the second very early on then, she's confronted with her own fear of her own inabilities, this internal anxiety. And, um, and I, I'm trying to recall what exactly happens there, except that they go into, uh, into the ship and it turns out there's, um, I mean, a dead hut <laughs> and, uh, some other dead creatures. And, uh, finally a Nile person, Nile escapee or not escapee, but a, a Nile warrior has been left behind. And, so they have to fight and take care of that. <laughs> but she goes in and she, you know, she, she goes in head first and is able to, the phrase standing in her power, in her authority as a Jedi Knight, having into independent creative agency as an equal, not so much with Skier because he's still a master, but with especially Sarah and Tarek, uh, who are knights themselves. And yeah, again, it's this interesting storytelling thing of instead of having her confront herself at the end, confronts herself near the beginning and says, this needs to be the foundation going forward for her to engage, uh, engage the galaxy, engage the, the challenges and threats um, faced by the galaxy as a whole. And then we come to Cedri Minor, and uh, you know the probably the, and certainly the biggest test in her young life so far. You know this part of this part of the story, this part of the arc, begins with a flashback to her as a Padawan. And we've seen a few of these exercises. We saw uh, Loden and his Padawan. Um, forget his name. Where where the they, the master takes them up to a, a mountain and basically pushes them off, <laughs> and uh, in this case with with uh, Keeve, it's jumping across a cliff and trying to jump across to the other side to another mountain or other cliff face, and she doesn't succeed, and she starts to fall, and so Skier catches her, and the point of the memory there is Skier 
was her rock was i mean the, the parental figure who she came to depend on to always be there and always be stable and always be the foundation and clearly we know what we hear uh, from skiers that since the battle of kerr which we read in, in charles soul's light of the jedi he hasn't been the same he's lost his arm he's encountered a darkness that is challenging him that i think is bringing up uh, the you know the the warrior tendencies the hunter tendencies that Trandoshans have and it's uh just a bit of an aside here and i wonder if this might be room for a full episode but you know the idea of skier being a jedi having a Trandoshan jedi is a very strange one and it's a, it's an interesting idea i don't know where this is going ultimately who knows if he's even still alive at the end of this arc but we've never seen a Trandoshan be a hero before they've been bosk the bounty hunter we've had um, the their pretty barbaric traditions of basically hunger games hunting uh I mean, depending on Wookiees or even Padawans in, in the Clone Wars. Now we have, uh, in Bad Batch, we have Rhea Perlman's Sid character. Still kind of shady, kind of on the helping them, but also on the shady side too. So this raises a question. Can a Trandoshan ever fully submit to the light? Is is that hunter uh, hunter instinct self-preservation instinct so strong in them because it's it seems to be stronger in them than others does that ultimately take over and it's this where i'm going with this is that it's an interesting comment possibly potential comment on original sin and how are any of us ultimately as stable as we need to be for others are any of us ultimately as capable of fully submitting to the light if these predatory instincts in us are gonna take over or conversely prey instincts that can keep us from really again standing in our power and our authority and and turning the galaxy for good in, in, you know, in Skier's case, we see a story of someone who he's curi- he encounters the Drengir and he willingly gives himself to them, ostensibly in order to learn their weakness. And we see that in that third issue, I believe, where he gets taken over the fourth issue, where he gets taken over by the Drengir. He resists them long enough to free Avar Chris and Skier or, or and, and Keeve and um, Sarat and uh, one a kid that Keeve picks up along the way, right? <laughs> um, but ultimately, he's playing with fire here. He's playing with the dark side. And again, is this a comment on uh, just Trandoshans? Is it a comment on humans that our curiosity? Our attempt to use power for good, even if it's a bit of a darker power, or especially if it's a bit of a darker power, will that always end up 
accosting us and uh, taking over and taking control. You know, it, we we can use tools, we can use technology, we can use political power and legal power. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we, we can try and resist it and keep it at bay. How much do we have to ultimately resist and go in a different direction? Especially in terms of power over people, and the power to discipline and the power to uh, call the shots, <laughs> frankly, as opposed to building consensus and leading through compassion. So ultimately getting back to Kiev's story then, uh, the fear she has to face here then is what if her master isn't her rock anymore? Especially now that, again, she's a knight. She doesn't have a master. She isn't a Padawan with a master. But this is the same person who raised her and was there for her for, throughout this time. Not so much raised her, but was there for her as during her apprenticeship. And she clearly remembers that fondly now that he is vulnerable, now that he is weak, now that he, uh, while Avar is trying to negotiate with the hut, um, taking over Sedri Minor has come to the protection racket. Uh, now when Avar is trying to point out the, the Drengir threat, he goes on the attack because he's taken over by the dark side or being taken over by the dark side. What does Kiev do? What can she do? Uh, does she trust herself and does she trust in the force enough to go on and not depend so directly on Skier? And this, I think, is again pointing to where she's going to be going in you know, how many decades' time. Because Skier, as her master, really does stand in for the Jedi Order as a whole and for the Council as a whole. I don't think he's not on the council, but the authorities, the hierarchy. And um, you know, she needs to learn that she has her own creative agency independent of, uh, of the hierarchy. Not so much independent, but uh, as part of this order, as part of this family, she needs to continue to actively contribute and then, even when and as this hierarchy that she grew up depending on becomes weaker and weaker, I think primarily by the Drengir, not so much the Nihil. I think this is another side. I think the Nihil are actually a bit of a bait and switch. They have a, they talk a big game, but um, as we're going to see in Kevin Scott's audio play, they have their own internal struggles that are going to as the dark side does pull them apart. The Drengir don't have those kinds of internal struggles. I don't think they are this telepathic mind. They are this subhuman, superhuman, humanoid, non-humanoid monsters that really come to personify everything. Humanoids, you know, the galactic civilization comes to fear, including the Jedi. They are an embodiment of the dark side. And as her master and as 
other Jedi Jedi Order comes to be uh, not embrace the dark side, but that shadow continues to loom over the shadow that is ultimately takes the shape of a Death Star. She's going to be able to see it coming, I think. And she's going to be able to recognize, oh, even as a master, um, this is not going the way it should. It's setting her up then to take that great schismatic risk of going it on her own, not as a wayfarer, but as the lost 19, the 19th lost master. I think it is again going to be sympathetic. It may not necessarily be heroic. And that's something I've come around in the last week, even of saying it may be more tragic for her than defiant because the story we have of, of Dooku is defiant, but it's uh, not heroic at all. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think she's going to be thrilled about <laughs> having to leave a corrupt order. It may not be so corrupt. It may just be, I don't know. I don't, it might, might be a matter of um, difference of opinion or perspective. Who knows? But what we see here is that she's going to face that fear of the risk of going it alone. And, I mean, probably not even going it alone, probably finding other people to go alone with. Because where she's not, again, not being set up like Dooku as a villain. She's being set up still as a sympathetic hero character. Um, I'll be a little disappointed if it's just about sticking it to the man, namely the Jedi Council, but the Jedi Order. But it, I, yeah, it, I think we're gonna feel her loss, similar to the way we felt Ahsoka's loss when she walks away. You know, there it's it's a clear flashpoint because. With Ahsoka, it is 200 years down the line. It is right on the cusp of the Jedi being completely taken over by the dark side in Order 66 and obliterated by the dark side. With Keeve, it's going to be prescience, as in she'll see inklings of where things are going. In this case, right now, though, coming back to it, she obviously doesn't need to leave. She's definitely part of things. She's, a, a, again, a newly minted knight. And Skier gives her the guidance of what to do. And this is the probably the great interesting twist, ironic twist a little bit, is she then instills fear into the Drengir. And that's how she saves the day, is with a type of Kylo Ren mind touch, but instead of trying to steal information, it's implanting a seed of fear into the Drengir that their meat is unclean. So this, I mean, it brings up this point that, of course there's fear. There should be fear. Fear is actually just a response to threats. You know, it's a response of, that swarm in the first art, first issue to these threats of, uh, you know, the, the uh, Starlight Beacon, just an instinctual response. You know, it it's, tells Keeve she's entering into a new and risky situation 
it tells her ultimately, uh, you know, I mean, we don't know. Again, I don't know. I'm just still continuing very clearly, very curious as to why she leaves and why is it a matter of because the Jedi are putting her in situations of fear that are unreasonable and uh, inappropriate. But she then puts, she puts the Drengir in the situation of instinctual fear of, I mean, of nothing really, because clean, unclean, I mean, how, how do you make that distinction? We don't know what the Drengir mean by that distinction. But in a way, I mean, it, it connects with our common, I want to say creaturely nature, our common vulnerability. And, uh, I mean, what she does end up doing is saying, I mean, well, you know, she chooses a peaceable response, at least with the huts. And she recognizes that that's what Avar is doing. Avar, whose image of the force is the song, the harmony. And knowing that to, to actually engage this fight with this hut clan would, would be a, a matter of disharmony. And so, you know, Avar is this is meant to be this model of the ideal Jedi. It's another model of that. Keeve recognizes that that's what she's doing, and so to play her part in to play her 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 instrument <laughs> in that great symphony. Uh, she, I mean, she wards off the Drengir rather peaceably, and that has repercussions both on Sedri Minor and in Nalhada and in. Starlight Beacon. And who knows? I mean, that might have implications for the Drengir as a whole. We don't know. Um, I'm just speculating there. But that's, again, bringing back to what I had said before, right? Kiev is going to symbolize the Jedi at, at a crossroads. She is going to, I think... Uh, be the one to articulate this choice or one of the ones to articulate this choice between do we deny our fear or do we use it to connect through our common vulnerabilities? And by that, I don't mean uh, in, a, in a codependent way. I mean, in a, we all need to come together and uh, resolve our problem, our problems together listening with compassion to what the other side needs and wants. Because along with, you know, being inherently sinful, and this is, again, using the Christian tradition here, we also have the capacities to submit to the light. We all, I mean, we all even, that's the thing with Skier, right? And the whole self-preservation instinct and tradition that Trandoshans have that evolved out of a sense of vulnerability and fear. What if Skier learning to transcend that in his truest Trandoshanity <laughs> uh, actually becomes you know, part of, learn, uh, is learning and has learned to be part of this greater whole. And Skier clearly brings a bit of aggression to it and Keeve is, I gather going to bring some aggression there too, as having come as, as Skier's Padawan, but it's going to be 
a wizened exercise of it. I, I really do have high hopes for her and her story. We know it ends somewhat tragically, but again, I keep harping back to this. It's going to be this sympathetic thing. It might even be lead us to even be sympathetic for the Jedi too. We don't know. There's a reason they have a bust of her in the Jedi Temple, in the Jedi Archives, as an opportunity to learn from their mistakes. And ultimately, we know they don't really, but um, we can see some lessons along the way. Clearly, someone like Qui-Gon had learned. I think Obi-Wan, in his own way, had learned and so, yeah, I mean, you know, the way Kennedy said, you know, the come back to you, and there's another connection there, of course, with the Camelot theme. Nothing to fear, but fear itself. If all fear is, is a response to vulnerability. So what do the Jedi fear? Again, we don't fully know. I think it has something to do with them not being able to be the guardians of peace and justice as they hoped what does Keeve Trennis fear we're going to keep seeing that how does she respond that's I again I, I think she's I hope she's going to be this main character throughout this run uh, it, it has a lot of promise it's off to a, a wonderful start a very dynamic and heart-wrenching start <laughs> And I'm looking forward to where it keeps going. So this has been episode 81 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. If you liked what you saw, like what you heard, if you don't, let me know. NEUG485 on Twitter. MNEUG1138 on Instagram. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of boldness. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you, always. <laughs>